Hey, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Mel Herbert here. It's time for a little bit of, uh, oh, come on, what is the date, Herbert? It's October 4th, it's a Friday. Yeah, it's a Friday, you've made it through yet again. I don't know about you, but this has been a busy week for me and our little company. Busy, busy as an, uh, what do they say? Uh, one-legged man in a bottom-kicking contest? That's what it feels like. Let's start off with a letter, shall we? And the letter goes like this. It's from Peter Schultz. He says, Mel, I remember a while back when Elon was promising air suspension for Model 3 together with Dual Motors. You said that you would never want another car without air suspension, but now you're saying you're getting a Model 3 instead of a Model S, so you don't think it's a big deal after all? I'm assuming that Raven is better than what you have in your Model S. Thoughts? Peter, thank you for the opportunity to wax not too eloquently about this topic. So, here we go. Yeah, I for me, air suspension is way better. It's smoother. You can jack it up, you can jack it down. That can be really helpful for people who have big slopes going into their driveways and that kind of thing. It can drop the car down and get even more efficient as you're going high speed on the freeway. Whereas the coil suspension in the current Model 3, it's just sort of set the way it is. Now, a lot of people like coil suspension in the Model 3 the way it is because it feels like more of a racing car. You can really feel the road. It's very responsive when you're turning the wheel. And so for some people that are drivers, that's good. I don't consider myself a driver in that sense. Like I don't have that particular skill set or I don't drive fast around corners and I don't want to feel that. I don't really care about that. So I would much prefer to have the smoothness of the ride and the ability to go up and downsies with air suspension. And yes, I don't have Raven. Raven just came out last year and Raven is those fixed magnets, 370 mile range versus my current S, which is about 295. The current Model 3 long range is 310 miles. So you get a lot more range in the Model S, the current one, but it's all a compromise, right? What I would really like is a Model 3 with 370 mile range and air suspension, and I would pay significantly more for that. But the fact is, the Model S is a lot bigger car. I find it a lot easier to drive the Model 3. I don't ding into things. Uh, apparently, i got issues. Uh, it also, in the Model 3, you sit further forward, so your vision out of the front of the car seems so much better, much more like the X, although not as high up. And I'm hoping that the Model Y is going to be the best of both worlds. Smaller car, higher up, further forward, lots of great uh, vision out the front of that thing. And so life is a compromise, so I'd rather pay what is probably half the price, in fact is half the price, for a well-configured Model 3 and not have air suspension, which is a bit of a bummer, and not have that extra 60 miles of range right now, which is a bit of a bummer, but worth it for, you know, what is probably five, six hundred dollars a month. It's really hard for me to rationalize a car that is as expensive as the Model S. Um, I can afford it, but I don't need it. And there's a lot of other things I could do with five or $600 a month. Thank you very much. And also the fact that, you know, I don't drive all of that much. When I do drive, it tends to be long distances. So, you know, everything, life's a compromise. And I would so love for the Model 3 to have all those things. And now we might see, you know, Elon has said, well, we're not going to do that. But now we've already seen that the Model 3 is already cannibalizing Model S. Don't be surprised. Do not be surprised if next year... They start coming out with Model 3s that have air suspension and increased range because they're like, to hell with it. Since we've already cannibalized Model S anyway, let's just make a more expensive Model 3 with these other things and try and get some profit back that way. I would not be surprised if they do that. It would make sense. So the people who want the bigger car and the super fast car can still get the Model S, 
but you can also buy a pretty expensive Model 3 that has a lot of the bells and whistles you get on S would make sense since you've already cannibalized anyway. I'd be that person, right? I'm going to get a Model 3 without air suspension, without a longer range, um, because I've decided that's the compromise I'm going to live with. But if you said, well, for an extra five or ten grand, you could get those things, I'd be like, here's your extra five or ten grand. Wouldn't cost them five or ten grand, but so therefore it would be a bit of a profit center for them. Was that a long enough rant? Oh, I think so. Oh, and Peter, just because I say something one day doesn't mean I'm going to say the exact opposite thing the next, right? Please. Now, China and Hyperloop, let's talk about that. So it was 2013 when Elon posted a white paper about uh, trains in vacuums going really fast, San Francisco, LA, 35 minutes. And the development has been pretty slow since then. Elon says he's using about 1% to 2% of his brain on this and his checkbook. But Hyperloop is starting, you know, we're getting a few things. You know, the big one is in Vegas and we're going to see how that goes. But now China says, well, let us tell you something. In 2020, they're going to start testing a 124-mile maglev train in a vacuum at over 600 miles an hour. Did you get that? Next year, 124-mile maglev train. By next year, I don't think anybody here in the U.S. is going to have more than about a six-mile long uh, Hyperloop to play in. But they're going to have 124 miles. Now, they already have a standard maglev above ground, no vacuum that goes, you ready for this? I had no idea. 372 miles an hour goes from Beijing to Shanghai. So the Chinese know how to make things, and they know how to make things go fast. And as we've seen from Gigafactory 3, they can build things fast. So this is pretty interesting and pretty cool. And I'll tell you why I'm a big supporter of this for just one reason. It is really difficult to get planes to run on renewable energy because you know, batteries right now do not have the energy density to do long haul with lots of passengers. Now, some people are now starting to talk about smaller planes, shorter hops, and they'll be able to do it with batteries, and that's great. But, you know, you're not going to be able to get a 747 with a lithium-ion battery pushing it for a long time into the future. You just need so much more energy density than that. The reason I like this idea of really fast trains that basically go as fast as planes is that you can then use renewable energy in those. So you have a big solar panel and running it along the top or in the fields that are next to the train. And that energy can then push that train at, you know, 600 miles an hour, 100% renewable, significantly reducing the carbon footprint of that very fast trip. So I really like the idea of having these super fast trains in place of planes because of the carbon footprint possibilities here. And speaking of transport, let's talk about California versus Uber and Lyft, as it were. So here is the issue. You may have heard about this. So you've got Uber and Lyft drivers, which are part of this, what everybody's now calling the gig economy. And I don't really know what the exact definition of the gig economy is, but I think it basically means you're an independent contractor that works for a high-tech firm. So Gavin Newsom, who is the governor of California now, says that they want to change this. They want to make these independent contractors that work for people like Uber and Lyft to become employees after 29 hours a week. And why is that important? Well, then they would get minimum wage, which is now $12 an hour, but will be $15 an hour in 2023. They'll then be able to get health benefits. They'll then be able to get unemployment insurance. They'll have to have mandatory time off. And all this sounds good, right? Because we've heard for so long that Uber and Lyft drivers basically are the working poor. They do a lot of hours. They don't get paid very much. They get no bennies. And it's a terrible job. It's a terrible job that a lot of people do because there is no other job and you and your barrier to entry is so small. If you've got a driver's license and a car, 
you can get some cash, but it's a pretty bad job. And a lot of people have said, well, this is not fair. These giant rich companies like Uber and Lyft should pay better and should give uh, benefits and do all this other stuff, which is true. I mean, I think people shouldn't, you know, have to be poor and working lots of hours. That seems bad. The problem here is, of course, that Uber and Lyft are hemorrhaging cash. They are not profitable. These are not like they're Apple and they've got lots of money and they should certainly be sharing the wealth with their employees. They are currently losing a ton of cash. Why? Because it costs them way more to do that, you know, 10-mile drive with you than they charge because what they're in is in this stage of trying to expand this out, get market share, and then find a cheaper way to do it, i.e. get rid of the people, and then maybe raise the prices as well. So don't think for a second that I think Uber and Lyft are good people. But on the other hand, they are employing people and they've got some money and these people are choosing to do it. There really is, you know, it's this difficult thing where there's no right answer. Of course, on the news, there's only one right answer. It's the, you know, you have to have the left answer or the right answer, but it's actually quite complicated. And from an individual perspective, from my perspective, you're going to have to take Uber or Lyft off my phone and pry it out of my cold, dead hand. I love this service. It's incredibly good. I do not want to go back to the taxi days. They were terrible. So what happens here is not clear. Uber has specifically said, well, if you make us do this, it'll be so unprofitable for us. We're out of California. Oh, no, that's terrible for me. Or what else could happen is that you'll still have these kind of services, but these services will do what so often happens. They'll go just to the profitable areas with all the rich people and they'll reduce the service. But if you're rich, uh, you'll be able to get a more expensive Uber or Lyft-like service to drive you around. And all the people who might need it who are not well off will not be able to get it. So I don't know the right answer to this, but this was sort of just a summary of some of the difficulties you have when trying to do the right thing. I think it's try- it's the right thing to try and look after people and employees and fend off the corporate people who are just trying to make a lot of cash who are going to dump you as a driver as soon as they can anyway. But it's complicated. And finally for today, this one is from Ryan Mooring. Ryan is actually the COO of my company and uh, he likes all these things as well. So this is from Inside EVs and it's a really interesting article that you should read and I'll put a link in the show notes, but it's about how big oil has a new, big, very powerful opponent. And who is that? Is it Elizabeth Warren? No. Bernie Sanders? No. It's the electric utilities. Right now, over 90% of the fuel that goes into transport is oil and gas industry fuel, right? But the future is looking more and more electric. So the competition for the oil and gas industry increasingly becomes utilities. And it's a big fight. They want to fuel your car. They want all those trillions of dollars going through them to you, or basically from you to them. And that fuel will be electrons, and they will make those electrons. Now, on the one hand, that's good if those electrons are renewable. It's very nice. But there's also another interesting battle here, and that is the battle between consumer groups and electric utilities, because consumers like me, and probably a lot of you, want to make your own solar energy, and store your own solar energy, and put that into your car, because then you know you're trying to be 100% renewable, and your utility might be 50%, and you want to speed things up, or you just want to have backup for your own reasons, or you just are a libertarian, like, oh, I want to live off the grid, uh, whatever it is, but the utilities don't want you to do that, 
They want you to go through them. And so they have tried to get some laws passed and have succeeded in places like Nevada, and they're trying again in Florida, to say, oh, sure, you can have your own batteries. Sure, you can have your own solar panels, but you're going to have to pay us a big chunk of money every month anyway. And if you use electricity, pay for that as well. So there's quite the battle here. Again, now I'm one of those people who believes, again, that there's a little bit of a gray area here. Even though I have solar and batteries and I can live off the grid most of the time, I, I need the grid there. We all need the grid there. So there should be some amount of money that I pay just to be grid tied. The question is how big that should be. And it shouldn't be excessive. It should be fair. It should be reasonable. Yes, these utilities need some money to maintain and to build out that infrastructure. And they will have to build it out more. As everything turns electric, we're going to have to use, you know, it's been estimated two, three times as much electricity. All right. So there should be some amount of money there. But at the same time, I don't want them ripping us off so that we just stop doing it because that's not fair either. I want to have my own solar and uh, everybody should be able to do that. And this distributed energy could actually be good for everybody if we do it right. So it's actually complicated about how you do that. Again, notice complicated. The world is not black and white. But it's just an interesting article to read to understand the various arguments here. I think it's really important to understand these arguments because so often they are presented as extreme on one side or extreme on the other and the truth is they're difficult because they're often gray and there's no right answer. And what we have to do, and this is the most difficult thing, is to try and look at what is the outcome? What do we really want? We want as cheap electricity as possible. We want it as renewable as possible. We want people to do it independently if they want to. But at the same time, we've got to make sure that the utilities really do have enough money to do what they do. So how do you put all that into the mix and get it right and then have enough money to build out electric uh, infrastructure and charging and all that stuff? And who's going to pay for that? Whew complicated but it's super interesting just like the show so you should go onto itunes and give us a rating and review or you should become a patron because it's so good what would you do if talking tesla and elon daily went away and so my name is mel herbert the show is elon daily it's part of the talking tesla network of shows and i'm going to talk to you on monday and i'm also going to talk to the patrons over the weekend how do you like that yeah i'm going to do a little patron show over the weekend because the patrons deserve some extra love herbert out Thank you.